Welcome to Cancrea, home of Canada's Crea Media. My name is Luke Smith. And my name is Sebastian. And we have two interviews lined up for us this week. While with a Forbester uh, talking to us about the uh, Grand Treaty 3's LGBTQ2S Council. And then we are joined by Ray, who is talking to us about police participation in Pride in St. John's, Newfoundland. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. but before we get into that, how many how many gay people do you think there are in, in Canada? Are we talking about full LGBTQ spectrum? Or well, are we talking let's, about- let's just go. Let's just go gay men. How many gay men do you think there are in Canada? Oh, most of the, the stats that I've seen say that it's about 2.5 percent of men. Are, are gay up to 3.5% if you're looking at gay and bisexual uh, beyond the age of 25, because sexual fluidity before 25 is pretty common. And then people tend to be fixed in their sexual identity by around 25. So it's about 3.5%. Well, that's the study they did in the mid 2000s in the States. So that's, that's the number I'm going with here. <laughs> okay. Well, according to Stats Canada, who issued a release as part of the Pride celebrations this year, okay. they have estimated based on the two cycles of the Canadian Community Health Survey that about one quarter of Canada's LGB population, lesbian, gay, and bi, is gay men, about 255,100. Yep. Ish. Then there's about 150,000 lesbians, but bisexual women mm-hmm. outnumber us by a considerable margin. Yep. Apparently, bisexual women make up the largest proportion of the LGBTQ plus community mm-hmm. at about 330,000 plus people in Canada identifying as a bisexual lady. Mm-hmm. They actually outnumber bisexual men at two to one, only 160,000 bisexual men. Yep, yep. This is uh, this makes sense to me. I've seen numbers like this before. They, there are get... some other interesting uh, stats here. You mentioned earlier about uh, the, the disproportionate number of youth who identify as LGBT. Mm-hmm. Uh, those who are aged 15 to 24 make up about 14% of the population. Mm-hmm. But LGBTQ people aged 15 to 24 make up about 30% of the LGBT population. Mm-hmm. So they are they are definitely skewing under 25. Mm-hmm. And apparently one third of all same-sex couples were married uh, in 2016. And they reckon that that's going to keep climbing and climbing um, as they process more recent data. Well, we'll be keeping an eye on other information, such as what we get out of the latest uh, census data. But before we move on to our interview, I did want to note that later in the show, we talk about Pride Toronto's 250000 federal grant for a project which changes multiple times over the course of its life with their project committee claiming that they applied it to back expenses, um, such as um, their Until We Are Safe uh, initiative, I believe. I think that was one of them. We'll dive into some more details later, but I just wanted to state that according to Pride Toronto, they did everything above board. However, questions certainly do remain. Well, Sebastian, we are jumping to our first song, and this is by the incredible Jody Wolf. This is Ride, and then after the interview, we will have Midnight Sea by Sleepy in the Noise. They got me out to stay. They don't even want to know. 
Welcome to Can Queer, home of Canada's queer media. My name is Luke Smith. I am actually very excited to be joined by Ray, uh, one of the stations that carries our show in uh, St. John's, Newfoundland. Um, CHMR, I believe, or CHMA, CHMR, I'm getting the head nod, is uh, the station in question. So Ray, thank you so much for joining us this week. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Now, I, we reached out to you, or you reached out to us asking about what what communities across Canada had banned the participation of police during their pride parades. Now, our listeners may recall that Vancouver made uh, a contract that said you have to commit to certain things to participate, and the police, weirdly enough, couldn't meet those uh, requirements, along with, I think, the Conservative Party of Canada and a couple of others also. But I don't believe Vancouver is the only one Toronto Pride on multiple occasions, their membership has voted against police participation. What did you find out about police and pride participation? I did do some reaching out. Uh, what is the name of the organization that represents can- Canadian prides? Fierte uh, Canada Pride, FCP. Yeah, they, they. I reached out to them and they didn't have a list of which prides had banned police because what I was, the reason I was interested in it was it had become kind of an explosive issue here in uh, Newfoundland um, in uh, the end of May, beginning of June. So I was interested in, I, I was covering the issue for a local newspaper and wanted to put put that in context to see where else these debates were actively going on. So what is the story out of St. John's, Newfoundland? What happened there and why did this bubble up, like you said, in May to early June? 
Well, yeah, it's a really interesting story and, and it ties kind of in interesting ways into the history of the queer community in, in St. John's in, in Newfoundland. So what immediately happened at the end of May was these ads started appearing online for a panel discussion that was scheduled for June 5th. And the panel was, it was called Police and Pride, a local dialogue. And it featured, you know, the poster, it had very prominently the logos of the RCMP, uh, the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary, the RNC, which is our provincial police force, St. John's Pride, which is the province's largest pride festival, and uh, Memorial University, which is our provincial university, and they were uh, funding the panel. And the panel featured, was going to feature two police officers, as well as two community members. The point of it was to discuss, uh, quote, a way forward for police and pride in St. John's Pride. So, so these ads kind of appeared uh, about a week and a half uh, before this panel, and they immediately set off an explosive debate locally. A lot of people were thrown off guard because they they didn't understand where this was coming from. Um, you know, why why were the police seemingly organizing this this dialogue? There actually was a history to it, which which I can get into. You know, it, it sparked a, a huge, very vitriolic debate. The St. John's Pride, you know, their Facebook page, their social media was flooded with hundreds of comments. Um, some local queer organizations reached out to the organizers and to St. John's Pride, expressing concerns with the way the panel was structured and, and what was going on with this. And so um, about three days, I think, before the panel was supposed to happen, St. John's Pride issued a statement where they said, um, because of the overwhelming response they had gotten with concerns about this panel, they were going to be uh, cutting ties with the panel, they weren't going to be involved, and they were also going to adopt a standing policy banning uniformed police from St. John's Pride going forward. Uh, so, so they made this announcement three days beforehand. From what I gather, the police forces expressed concern to the organizers. They didn't want to be involved in an event if it was going to be, you know, looked on negatively by the community. Um, so the organizing team met, uh, the organizing team for the panel, they met and uh, made the decision to cancel the panel. So it was kind of an ironic um, thing, you know, this panel that was uh, scheduled to discuss uh, police and pride, it wound up leading to a ban on police and pride and uh, and then it got canceled itself so so that's the gist of what what happened over the course of you know the first week in june when i was covering this issue uh, i did you know some some digging into uh, what lay behind all this. And there's a bit of an interesting history I can get into if if you'd like. I, you know, personally, I find it quite astonishing. And, and I think astonishing is the, is the right term here. The reason why I'm astounded is because I can see a scenario where a professor says, look, let's have a, let's have a discussion. Let's have an open forum. And I can see the police thinking, yeah, that's, that's a reasonable approach. Pride thinking, yeah, that sounds somewhat reasonable. And to have this kind of explosive response and and these kind of you know when you when you think of where they're starting at which is participating in a panel and where they end which is banning uniformed participation um that's that's a hell of a, a shift from from one to the other how do you go from from a panel which is you know supposed to be this forum of discussion into into these these 
these actions and decisions that have only been echoed in a few pride organizations across the country. I'm not excusing the constabulary and the RCMP here, and there probably are very valid reasons why the, they were banned. But I'm just kind of curious as to how it went from a, a you know, an amicable relationship to a, a messy breakup uh, in the course of two weeks. You know, that's that's where I'm struggling a bit here. And and uh, yeah, why didn't you jump into that? And then we'll uh, we'll see what questions uh, Seb may have. Sure. Well, I think it's also important to contextualize that the, um, you know there have been over the past say decade this debate has erupted a few times. So there there's a bit of history to this um, in St. John's. Um, so so maybe if I go into a bit of that, that might help. Um, I, I guess, uh, uh, help people to understand why why it kind of got set off in this way. So um, I, I guess, so when you look at the, the you know, as we know, the police and, and, and the queer community, you, you know, there's a long history of negative interactions there. And, um, you know, it's the same, it's the case in, in Newfoundland as well as other places. So, one of the key incidents a lot of people talk about when when they talk about this, you know, the role of police historically with uh, um, engaging with the queer community um, is uh, this event that took place in 1993. So this is where some of the origins of this this took place. So in 1993, um, there was a police investigation. In St. John's, we have two large shopping malls. Um, one of them is called the Village Mall. And the, um, the Village Mall was a place where gay men tended to go to, to meet up. Um, uh, and they would, they would sometimes uh, engage in sexual acts in the, in the washrooms in the, the Village Mall. So the police, um, the, the RNC, the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary, they, uh, found out about this and launched an investigation and uh, it became a very detailed investigation. They actually, they um, set up vi video cameras in the washroom. They recorded uh, over the course of a few weeks, you know, who was coming in and out of this, this washroom. Um, it, it was a really in-depth in investigation. And then after a few weeks of this, they, they kind of struck and they arrested, I think, uh, 36 men in all. Who they had identified uh, as as you know frequenting these washrooms in in the mall, um, the the men you know they were charged with indecent acts um, and they were ultimately fined. Um, I think the the largest fine was fifteen hundred dollars, but it it had a huge it had a much deeper impact on on the the, the men and the families involved. Um, several of the men lost their jobs. Um, uh, several of them were married, had families and children, and their marriages broke up, their, fa their families broke up. Um, one of the men, um, he died shortly after the charges, and it was widely believed that, that he killed himself. Um, so, um, and what the, the, the largest local newspaper in the province, um, it actually, it ran the names and addresses of all the men who were arrested. Um, and it, it also printed rumors that there was a second wave of arrests coming, that there was going to be dozens more men arrested. So the whole community was in a panic um, and, and was also facing so much, you know, this really just stoked homophobia. Um, so so this, this was a really, uh, yeah. I was just going to jump in here. Is that newspaper invited to participate in the parade? 
um, because yeah. and and the reason why I bring this up is and actually we talked about it last week when we were talking about Calgary and a big budget police operation to raid a bathhouse in Calgary and all of these men who were arrested and those men those who survived till now you know many of them are still alive it is living memory for many people and uh, they're not here for the police participating you know these are the same police who are now in very senior positions who may very well have been the ones rounding them up 20 years earlier I, you know it's very understandable but the the piece about the media is something that we've seen historically elsewhere uh, Seb this has happened in other places hasn't it this has actually happened here in Ottawa uh, back in the, oh, I can't remember the year. I think it was early 80s, 82 or something like that, where a very similar event happened. And the police released a, well, they released a blotter to the local media. Uh, and a lot of that information is not necessarily there to be published. It's there just for context. But the Ottawa citizen did end up publishing the name and home address of all the men involved in the sting operation here. And it is kind of interesting that, like, as much as there is this history of trying to reconcile with the police, because, I mean, awkward as it is, I mean, there is this thing where, like, there is a higher rate of crime incidents with the LGBT community than with the general population. There's a lot of assault. There's a lot of domestic abuse. There's a lot of sexual assault, but uh, both uh, as a homophobia motivation, but also, like, between people within the community. And we need a better relationship with the police and this is getting in the way but there's been no reconciliation that i know of with the local media that over the years in various cities have published the names and home addresses and it's kind of weird and frustrating that it never really gets mentioned uh, especially in the current day and age when everybody on every side of every aisle has some gripe about the media you'd think that this would come up at some point in time um, it, I mean, it is the media not reporting on it is is not a surprise. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, you know, they're not going to be like, look at the thing we did when we published everybody's names. But when you said that, Ray, it it it, it really jumps up and makes my blood boil because mm. it is, you know, the fact that the the Newfoundland Constabulary spent so much money on that operation to get a fine of $1,500, which is- And it's so invasive. You know, it is so invasive and ridiculous. Yeah. You know, not only did that happen, but the media the, the media and the police were responsible for ruining these men's lives. Mm -hmm. What happened next? What happened once this media release came out? Well, um, so, so, so yeah, so, so this, and it's, that's really interesting what you raise about the uh, complicity of the media. Um, yeah, I was looking back at, at some of the, the coverage and it was controversial at the time. The newspaper took a lot of flack um, for, for printing the names. Um, the local CBC covered the controversy of the newspaper printing the names, but the CBC did all these kind of streeters where pretty much everyone they asked said, oh yes, you got to publish, you know, it was very homophobic streeters, <laughs> people saying, yes, it was, they were right to publish the names. So, so that, that's a really important issue. Um, so 25 years later, actually, um, in 2018, the, um, if you, you jump ahead, what, yeah, this was, we were coming up on the 25th anniversary, I guess, of, of, of this happening. And the, um, uh, the St. John's Pride, uh, they're, they're run by a bunch of, by a board that calls, they, they're all called co-chairs, but there's like a lead co-chair. So the lead co-chair um, 
Noah Davis Power, he um, issued a call for, he called on the RNC to publicly apologize for their role in this 1993, in these arrests. Um, and actually there were also letters to the newspaper, I remember at the time, criticizing their involvement 25 years earlier. So I'm, I'm, I, I don't know if they apologized or not, but um, yeah, but so the St. John's Pride called on the police to apologize. The police um, said no, that they weren't apologizing. It's, it's unclear whether um, the, the police refused or whether the Justice Department, uh, the provincial government told them not to apologize. The um, Davis Power, he blamed the, the government for intervening against the apology. So he announced that not only was he, gonna, was he going to seek the banning of uniformed police officers, he was also going to try to ban the liberal government from participating in the pride parade. Um, the MHAs and you know, the liberals marching with their liberal t-shirts and banners. Um, so so, so this, this is what he announced. In response to that, other pride board members disagreed. They, they, they resigned in protest. In response to their resignation, he resigned. So the entire organization collapsed pretty much. <laughs> um, there was one board member left standing at the end of it all. Um, he, uh, he reached out to the community. Uh, he kind of uh, reached out to, I think, five lo prominent local activists and academics involved in the, in the community, asked them to put together a crisis management team to deal with this situation and to rebuild uh, you know, St. John's Pride, which they did. They held a bunch of community meetings and dialogues. They did a survey. They held by-elections. They got Pride back on the go, and we had a, a, a Pride in 2018. The police were invited in the end as well. Um, so, so things began trucking along. However, um, the, the crisis management team, um, uh, during their deliberations, when they were putting things back together, they, they tackled this question of police and Pride. They did a, a survey. The majority of respondents said they wanted the police in pride, but it, it was not a scientific survey. It was open. And there were respondents who didn't identify as part of the community. There were respondents from elsewhere in Canada. So they didn't really know who was responding. So, so they decided to um, hold further dialogues about the issue. And um, one of the committee members, Dr. Suleiman Giwa, with the School of Social Work at the university, he volunteered to take on the role of facilitating these further dialogues. Because St. John's Pride had no money, he applied to the university for funding. University funding cycles take a while. <laughs> um, and then COVID happened. So basically, this panel that was announced last month is what he started organizing in 2018 in response to everything that happened that year. Um, the thing is, you know, the, the world had kind of moved on. People had forgot about, uh, well, they hadn't forgotten, but they'd moved on from all this. Um, a lot had changed in the intervening three years. So I guess from his perspective, he was just continuing the task he'd been given. But from the community's perspective, uh, folks were like, where is this coming from? Why are we diving into this debate again? So um, I think that helped to fuel some of the, 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 the shocked response that, now, that came as soon as you explained, you know, that this panel was uh, a deliverable based on academic funding, it does not surprise me one inch that it took so long before that thing happened. And, and I'm seeing knowing smiles from Sebastian here, yeah. uh, who suffered through academia for, you're, you're a recovering academic, aren't you? Oh, yes, Sebastian? I am. Yeah. Uh, two to five years is a, a pretty good 
uh, time frame. If it took up to 10, I wouldn't necessarily be shocked. It's, a, it's on the slower end, but that's that's not uncommon. So, you know, what yeah. I what I wanted to mention, and I, I think I, I say this almost every week. Pride is a space that we have fought blood, sweat and tears, incarceration. Many folks have died to make that space available to the LGBT community in our communities across the country. It is something that we fought tooth and nail for to have happen. Straight folks don't have an automatic right to participate. The police don't have an automatic right to participate. And the liberal government of any province or federal body doesn't have an automatic right to participate. You know, they are invited as guests to participate in this space that has been carved out through decades and decades of of, um, abuse through systems of of governance. So with that understanding of of pride, you know, I am am on team, everybody welcome, let's all have a good time. But if there is a refusal to acknowledge the real harm done to people who are still alive um, and harm done by people who are still alive and may even still be in the service, it is shocking. It is absolutely shocking and deplorable. And if they chose to ban the provincial liberal government for backing that decision, um, I would say they were on the right side of that. So I think you've explained the bish bash bosh, which is that uh, 20 year history, the three year educational funding cycle to, to all get to where we are now. Um, it seems like it seems like some lines have been drawn in the sand here in Newfoundland. Um, but of course, not all, not all gay people are on the same page. We're not homogenous. Uh, we're just homosexual. Uh, so that, that does bring me to the question. Of, <laughs> sorry. That, like, <laughs> that was a bad pun. Um, but yeah, that does bring me the question to where does St. John's and, and Newfoundland go next? Is there a path forward for the constabulary, the provincial liberals, um, and, and a path forward in, in healing? Where, where does this go? That's a really good question. Um, I, I, guess, I guess a few things um, come to mind. I mean, I got to say, St. John's Pride is kind of, I, uh, I think, rebounded quite well. You know, immediately once after this all happened, they, they hit the ground running. They were you know, having contests for logos and, and, um, you know, designs. So, so they've been, they've really gotten the community mobilized again. Um, our pride happens later than most places because of the weather here. <laughs> it's not until um, July 16th that our pride week starts. So, uh, so things are really going again, which is, which is good. Um, one of the organizations that did reach out about um with concerns to the organizers of this event uh, was the Safe Harbor Outreach Project, which is a sex worker advocacy organization. Um, and I quoted them extensively in the story. They, you know, they, what, they, what they told me was that they, they work closely with the professor who organized this ill-fated panel. They have a lot of respect for him, but they said, you know, um, these you know conversations have to happen within the community, but it's a matter of how you have them. Maybe um, having a panel with you know two police officers sitting there is 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 not the way to start the discussion. You know, so they they provided a number of suggestions about how um, you know there there can be a more gradual and and more inclusive opening of 
handling of this discussion within the community. Um, which So I think that question of how to do it is important. Um, I spoke with one of the panelists who would have spoken at the panel, and uh, you know he made a really good point. You know he said, uh, as much as St. John's Pride says police are banned, um, he said, uh, you know I, I don't think uh, they're going, or I, you know I don't think this question is is done with, not because St. John's Pride um, won't follow through in their commitment, but because the police are not going anywhere. <laughs> um, and so, you know, there, there could be a need down the road to to engage with this, this, this issue again. So, yeah, you know, I, I think the focus of St. John's Pride this year is to have a really good festival. You know, Pride was all virtual last year. We're also apparently not, a, they're not going to be holding a parade this year. Um, the restrictions are still a bit too too strict around COVID to have a, a full-scale parade, but there are going to be more in-person events. So, you know, it's a matter of kind of remobilizing the community now. And, you know, they're, they're doing a really active job of that. You know, this isn't, this isn't pleasant for the gay community to have to reckon with every single summer. And, you know, I know that, uh, you know, straight folks listening to us talking, I was like, every, every summer, we're banging on about the police. And, and it's not something that we're enjoy doing. But when I think of people who are in their 50s, in their 60s, living in St. John's, Newfoundland, whose lives were ruined by that police raid, you know, do they want to have a contingent of happy, smiley police officers next to them? Or is that wound still a little fresh? You know, and, and I think that's a consideration that each of us in the all of our communities have to think about. It, it's definitely not something that we enjoy. Now, I do enjoy, uh, is it Schadenfreude? Schadenfreude? Schadenfreude. Schadenfreude. There we go. I do enjoy mispronouncing German words. Now, aside from, I bring this up because uh, I told Ray this story, and I would like your, your response, Ray, in terms of your hot take on it. But I'm not sure if Sebastian is aware of this. So uh, last year, the year before, when the Liberal government at the federal level announced substantial funding for the LGBT community, including a whole range of projects which were announced last year, and we had some great interviews with uh, Minister Chagger about those uh, announcements. But myself and Sebastian were a little bit critical, let's say, of the initial funding that went to like three people, mm -hmm. including 250,000 that went to Toronto Pride for the purposes of like conducting a what's your relationship with policing survey um, across the country. This was, was former ED Olivia Nawama was, was still, uh, still in charge. Do you the remember that? Yeah, it's it's the kind of task that you would expect. Because uh, uh, the the quality of research that they expected, I think StatsCan and like three or four independent uh, surveying firms in Canada are really the only people who could handle it to the degree that they wanted it. And mm -hmm. uh, Toronto Pride is not on that short list. No, no, they are a local festival. Yeah. So this local festival, according to CBC reporting that came out this week. Uh, this local festival in Toronto, it, I say that flippantly, it is the third or fourth largest festival uh, in, in the world for Pride. Mm. Um, but uh, that being said, this, this Toronto Pride uh, wanted to celebrate the relationship between police and the community. And uh, they got a quarter of a million federal dollars to, to make that happen. Um, but within about a week, 
the membership of Toronto Applied had decided no to police participation. And then the Toronto Tribe board overturned the membership's decision, and then the membership overturned the board's decision. Um, so in the end, it all ended up being the no police in Pride. Um, but of course, they have a quarter of a million Canadian federal tax dollars in their back pocket um, to celebrate this initiative. So they had to rethink what they're going to do. But isn't that earmarked? Isn't that funding earmarked for specifically that type of event? Yeah. And that's why they had to rethink what they were going to do. And according to CBC reporting... Or turn down the funding. The, oh, that's it's... not going to happen. Because Toronto <laughs> Pride at the time, under Olivia, Olivia Nwama's former executive directorship, was $700,000 in deficit. This is mm. before the pandemic. This is yeah. just they they are in deficit. Mm -hmm. um, and that was mainly due to sponsors and granting bodies pulling out as a result of the Black Lives Matter protests that happened mm -hmm. there a couple of years later. So the issue of Toronto and police was huge, but they got quarter of a million dollars to celebrate. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it's, it's really peculiar because like uh, on our show, I, I don't want to say defend, but I, I speak on behalf of the police quite a bit, but not Toronto. Toronto Police, the, the the Metropolitan Toronto Police Service is one of the only ones in Canada where I'm like, or actually they're worse than you think. Like everything you think about the police, your local police are probably not that bad. They make mistakes. It's not the 80s anymore. But Toronto, oh, you probably even and people who live don't, in Toronto don't take don't, don't take our word for it. <laughs> yeah, take the word of an independent judge who told them to shreds yeah. over oh, institutional God. homophobia leading to the delayed arrest of uh, the Bruce MacArthur, of Bruce MacArthur, yeah. um, the serial killer who was yeah. casually targeting gay men in Toronto for a long time. Um, you know, the Toronto police have been found independently uh, to be lacking in that area. So <laughs> the Pride gets this nice fat check Yep. They can't go with their initial project working with the police because apparently everyone except them thinks that's a bad idea. Yeah. Uh, according to Pride, they had an independent advisory committee who was working on it, and uh, they suggested the expenses go a bit here, a bit there, a bit everywhere. Uh, CBC summed it up as, uh, and I quote, uh, Pride Toronto took 250000 federal grant to mark controversial milestone. Um, the project changed multiple times. Money eventually used on past expenses. So the CBC has asked uh, why and what, and uh, apparently Finance Canada, the, the, the financial department, offered straight away to write the Canadian Heritage a check for 250,000 to cover this project. No questions asked. He, they didn't even apply. There was no written work. They they were like, you know what? They might apply. Here's a check. Go have fun. And uh, when the CBC is asked why they did that, they declined the comment. So am I saying this is suspicious? Yes, I am saying this is very suspicious because I think it is ridiculous that Toronto Pride and Olivia Nawama would have proposed this to begin with. She is on record multiple times saying that projects are proceeding as, as planned, writing reports back to the government, saying things are going hunky-dory, when in reality, things were all falling apart and not happening. So her leadership 
these years later are still being called into question. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's shocking news. But the relationship between police and pride continues to to top headlines across the country. And you know, it's it, it's interesting because the that kind of nebulous relationship between the federal funding and the Toronto Pride it came up during some of the debates happening here in in, in Newfoundland Ooh. because you know I, I think there is a suspicion of within the community that the of the you know forces <laughs> forces trying to bring to to bring the police into pride and so when people saw this panel advertised I think regardless of how well the organizers were trying to 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 make it inclusive that innate suspicion arose oh you know it's it's someone trying to to force the police back into pride um and what's going on in in toronto just you know fueled that innate suspicion of the motivations of people behind this um you know um like you said earlier um these groups don't have a have a an innate right to be part of pride they need to be invited and so i it becomes hard you know people don't have the perception that there's an honest effort to engage to be accountable for the past to change moving forward when we hear things like this and and it, it just really really um fuels that uh skepticism about the sincerity of of people involved no, i mean i'm i'm skeptical of any organization like uh, if if there were a pride in canada that said we only prioritize individuals and institutions and organizations we don't care what you are there's a tiered list like you know uh, uh, local services that's tier one uh small independently owned businesses by lgbt members that's tier two everyone else is tier three and even tier one and two you're not individuals you take a back seat to the actual people of the city like if, if somebody did that we're like we don't care like you're a group you're not a person you're not a priority to me it would be very bad for the funding but i think it'd be very good for the festival in terms of the building the community so this idea like there is no organization that is so special that they get an automatic in other than the organization of pride itself but they're the ones who are keeping the lights on so you gotta let something happen right but yet it, it's yeah, it's it's really interesting how a lot of this is coming to a head, how uh, all these different um, sort of vested interests, because I mean, one of the biggest reasons why the feds would be interested in directly funding Toronto Pride is because it is a festival that is worth millions. There have been some years where they have so many tourists arriving in Toronto, even if just for a day. Like even people from you know the surrounding uh, greater Toronto area, that the number of people within the city limits of Toronto essentially doubles for at least a day. A lot of people are very invested in this. And for, for any kind of government agency, whether it be municipal, provincial, or federal, to say, we got to get this thing under control, there's a lot of money on the table. It just, it just follows. Whether you agree with it or not, of course, of course this would happen. It's just an issue of can we make sure this happens in a way that is healthy and respectful towards the community? Uh, does it need to happen at all? Because I've also heard people in Toronto saying we need to crash the whole thing and go back to just having like basically picnics and, and each individual bar in the community does their own event. And then that's pride. So, I mean, you have sort of all these different answers to this. And really, it's just that pride has gotten so big where this this kind of attention between all the different forces was inevitable like it or not absolutely i think you've hit the nail on the head there seb 
Well, um, thank you, Ray, for uh, you know speaking to us about what's happening in Newfoundland. We will touch base in July, um, uh, around the time of the, the the Pride events there, to see how things are shaking out uh, in the virtual and, and uh, physical space. Um, but uh, at this point, we are going to jump to a song. When we get back, we have the interview with Wawete uh, Fabista um, about uh, Grand Treaty 3's LGBTQ2S Council. And uh, later on, myself and Seb will return with some other updates. We'll be back just after. TV static skies behind closed eyes. I'm seeing stars on fire Guard the last moments, the day is warmth in The world's moving on again Whoa, whoa, where did the day go? You were there right next to me The next thing that I know We're swimming in the midnight Swimming in the midnight sea Swimming in a midnight sea Yeah, we're swimming in a
and welcome back to Cancrea, home of Canada's Crea Media. My name is Luke Smith, and I am very excited to actually be joined by our next guest in today's show, Wawate Forbster uh, from the Grassinaris First Nation. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's it's really appreciated you uh, you coming on uh, the show. Thank you for having me. You kind of came to to our attention with the work that has happened with the Grand Council of Treaty 3 launching the LGBTQ2S Council, which I believe is going to form one of the, I mean, right now there's a four governing councils with Treaty 3, and this will become, I assume, the fifth. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what inspired the creation of this council? Uh, yeah, well, what I guess how what inspired it, because this is start, this is the, um, where inspiration is, comes before I even started, right? Okichita Francis Kavanaugh, he's a very empathetic uh, leader, chief. He told me a story. Um, I don't know if it's my story to tell, but I'll just give a little um, thing what uh, what he t- had told me. Is that he was at a, he was in a meeting here in Winnipeg, and he noticed an indigenous woman crying, and she was there was political meetings happening and and he asked her what why he was why she was crying and and she said i don't i don't belong here i don't fit in there and and he had asked um what do you mean and and she she um identified under the lgbtq spectrum and he said oh and then and then yeah so they basically he wanted to know know more about it and and so he invited her to come to meetings and so he was able to like, he's straight, right? And yeah, so he just wanted to know more about it. And then, so he thought about that. And then he said, um, okay, well, we need to have our, and he read this, like some statistics that were going, um, going around in the country about about the, the LGBTQ2S community. And, and he said, okay, well, they need to be in, um, included. And historically, they've always been there. So he's just learning about learning about about that history, about reclaiming. So he wanted to bring that aspect, like reclaim everything that's been lost through assimilation and colonization. And so yeah, so they they had to do um, a resolution with all the chiefs of Treaty Three with the twenty eight communities that Treaty Three represents. They made the re- the resolution said that we want to have, have a council, a fifth one, and uh, we'll start off by having um, a coordinator and, um, to assemble. The, the council and so that's where I come in and that's when I that's I'm the I'm the coordinator and I'm assembling the council that's my job right now <laughs> so I'm assembling it and so the council will happen um this fall that's no small task that's definitely not uh not a small job you've been given by the sounds of it no it is a lot of work <laughs> this is so much um because there's 20 communities and there's um certain um protocols that need to be to be taken and and there's certain structures that that were um the national they follow and and so we're i guess negotiating how to fit that in how to include that and how we how we fit in the spectrum and how shape and mold um not us but also how we can get married marry within one of the things that, that i'm curious about you know we follow a lot of international news we know for example in ghana they're pushing against colonial era anti-sodomy laws and kind of trying to free themselves from the shackles of British colonialism and, and the legal stuff that still exists in Ghana. And that's happened all over the world with, with different colonial powers. I'm kind of curious, you know, I think our listeners are familiar with the indigenous indi- uh, identity of two-spirited, but I'm kind of curious as to what you think the impact has been 
on LGBTQ2S acceptance in Treaty 3 as a result of colonialism? Do you think that it's a harder fight because of what the, the history, or do you think that this is this is something that uh, you folks can 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 manage in your own path? I think, well, I absolutely think we can manage, um, but it is, um, that, that has taken, like the, colon- the, the colonization and assimilation has definitely taken a big toll on our, on our customs, our language, our, um, our system, our way of life. And it's really dismantled everything, um, how, how we existed and how we operated and how, you know, um, how everything functioned, how we operated. So now like, it's all about like uh, adapting and um, reclaiming and restoring. So I feel like that's the stage we're at Um, and healing, definitely lots of healing. I think that's the big part of it is um is healing because there's so much trauma that has happened within our communities and our people and 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 include myself included i'm um a product of a intergenerational trauma and that'd be that's part of the healing too and i think that's uh what um Kuchita francis is saying okay well we're part of healing and part of healing is restoring and also bringing back voices that um are left behind so we all we have to all become full again to move forward and and so that's why he's include included the lgbtq2s back into the circle back to the the policy making tables and being one of the advisors that reclaiming piece is so incredible powerful because you know, there's this narrative that gay as an identity popped up in the in the 80s after the Stonewall riots in New York, and that it's that sort of San Francisco, New York model of gay is what it means to be gay. And that forgets about a whole world of history, you know, that there's there's, uh, you know, queer identity that is indigenous to communities all over the country, all over the world. And there's a queer identity that is indigenous in the sense of coming from, from, uh, you know, the, the first peoples of Canada. And so I just, I wanted to let our listeners know that, you know, being gay didn't just pop up or emerge in the 60s and 70s out of San Francisco. This is something that has existed amongst peoples all over the world, you know, for, for as, probably as long as, as there have been humans. So I just I think because we often think about, you know, people immediately go to Stonewall, they go to I I bring this up because I see behind you the the flag of of uh, Treaty 3 and the Anishinaabe uh, Nation. And last year we reported on the uh, Pasquayak Cree Nation, which raised their own flag as part of the Pride celebrations. And I believe that a, a similar flag raising happened as part of the launching of this event. I can't remember exactly where it was raised. I think that there's this kind of ownership of what came before um, this sort of Western model of being gay. You know, are you, are you excited to see that kind of that Indigenous identity, identity coming back to the fore and, and you know, being being brought back and, and uh, empowered? Oh, for sure. Because um, I've been pushing it because I, I'm a playwright, right, also? And I wrote a play about it, like, um, back in 2008, and I toured that for about 10 years, and it talks about, um, it talks about being two-spirited and Anishinaabe. Um, um, it's a common-made story, but with my, my art, I, um, I, I'm an advocate for 
for our community as well. Um, but yeah, so and within also within that, like I'm still like I feel like I'm still like within that um, advocacy of pushing our voices, making sure our voices are heard, and bringing back our stories. I'm still doing that same kind of work, but in a different kind of um, in a different setting, really. And in the in the political in a political organization <laughs> it, it has to be with community too like it can't um so that's um what i'm doing right now is connecting with many community members and also with um medicine people and ceremonial people that uh, are two-spirited and because that's historically what we our roles and responsibilities were then so kind of connecting to people that are are modern today are um, ceremony people and and conduct ceremonies. They're two spirited, and well, a couple of them are, and connecting with them. So it's kind of like, okay, so it's still that that line that line is still there. So let's just connect the dots and bring the pieces all together. And because it's not completely lost, it's just about putting it together, you know, and connecting. So it's building the structure again, basically. And yeah, make sure they have that respect that, that they deserve. I get the sense as well that there is a focus on celebration and and, and empowerment. And I, I want to kind of point to, uh, if anyone listening here is a, a Tree 3 member, they can, they can reach out to you um, and, and join your speaker series and virtual hangouts, which happen on Thursdays over the course of June. Um, mm-hmm. So if you're if you are a Tree Three member, be sure to reach out um, and there. And just this past week, you had Melanie uh, Melody McIver. I realized that time of recording that's tomorrow, so you can't you can't speak about how it went when it hasn't happened yet. Um, but <laughs> but you yeah. know, what was well, the motivation well, between getting Melody on board and and kind of you know what what are your thoughts behind these speaker series? Right. Um, well, I want like for the speaker series is to um, highlight our um, heroes and highlight our LGBT um, um, members that are that are do are doing exceptional work, you know, and you know, and leading leading a life in that is the living the good life, and you know, and are that they that we exist and I think presence like because when I was growing up in 3D3 when I was um teenager I didn't have that and I didn't have I didn't have anyone to look up to in terms because there is no presence and I think presence is really important and letting know letting them know that we're here there's presence and you know and being able to um to connect because we have also been, we have also been in the pandemic right so so it's been a lonely time so we've also put out like an attachment of virtual hangouts so that way they can um, basically ask a few questions if they want um i think that is what i wanted to do was highlight the heroes because our young people need to have um someone to look up to to aspire and to because in, in our communities, our the the, the fire of um, moving forward or like um, doing work is sometimes low. So sometimes we just need to ignite their fire so that they have motivation, succeed, and be the best they can be in in whatever endeavor they choose. You know, and having presence of our heroes and there and available, it's it's necessary and it's good for um, for them. <laughs> It sounds to me like you've got a lot on your plate with uh, developing the 
LGBTQ2S Council, its its vision, its mandate, and and uh, working with all of those twenty two uh, communities across Treaty Three. Twenty eight. Twenty eight. Sorry. Well, um, that makes it even more of a challenge. You know? yeah. And that's that's what I was saying is uh, you've got a lot of work ahead of you, and uh, we are wishing you all of the strength in in doing this work and. You know, it's interesting, I think you mentioned here and also in your interview with the CBC about the importance of role models, and I'm certain that you are becoming one yourself, so uh, we wish you all the best. That was our interview with Wawote Forbester. Now, before we play out with our uh, last song by Disaffected Scrolling Through by Incendiary Suite, Seb, what a roller coaster of an episode. Mm-hmm. You know, what's your big takeaway from this week? I mean, something that definitely came up during the, uh, the police segment, something that has come up both this week and last week is the unfortunate truth that this time of year, every year, we kind of talk about the same issues again. Luckily, we don't talk about them the exact same way every time, which is good both for not making us bored out of our skulls, but also because it shows that there is some progress. Absolutely. Well, next week, we will be doing a catch-up of all of the news stories that almost made it on the show. Oh, man. And uh, yeah, we're excited so for it. So much then. from the Olympics. So, and not just the Olympics, a lot yeah. of Canadian LGBT news that we haven't touched on just yet. Mm. This is Disaffected Scrolling Through by Incendiary Suite. I've been Luke Smith. And I've been Sebastian. And thank you for listening. Disaffected Scrolling Through Artificial Filtered Views No more cloying pl-